This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg Now we begin chapter 15, page 247 15, it's no uh, coincidence, it's chapter 15, which is when the moon is at its peak. And this chapter is all about to understand the ten spherot. We know this is the basis of Kabbalah, the ten spherot, the ten divine emanations, because God creates the world and sustains the world, and the ten spherot are like the interface between God, the infinite, and our finite and limited world, material world. So the ten spherot, which God emanates from within himself, so to speak, God's personality and character, God's mind, so to speak, and God's emotions. And it's through the ten spherot, this is the interface through which God, who's infinite, creates and animates and sustains our world. Of course, God is not finite. God is infinite, but God is perfect. And because God is truly undefined and infinite, therefore, he cannot be limited even to being infinite. If you say that God is infinite and not finite, you're limiting God. God is truly undefined. And therefore, since God is perfect and whole, paradoxically, God could be infinite and at the same time be finite. God could contain himself and express himself through these ten divine emanations that emanate from within God, so to speak. So God has the ability to express Himself in a finite way. God's wisdom, God's love, even though it's, it's highly defined, love, wisdom, these are all definitions, but God has the ability to manifest His infinite self in a very finite way. And this is what the is referred to in the prophets, in the prophetic vision of Ezekiel, the man sitting on the throne. The angels are surrounding the throne, the Kisi HaKovet, and the vision of the man sitting on the throne. So he's referring to God, the man sitting on the throne, the angels are surrounding the throne, throne of glory. But the man sitting on the angel of the throne, why is God referred to man? Because God manifests himself through the ten spherot. So to speak, God concentrated himself and revealed himself through these ten spherot, which is like man. God's, we can speak of God's mind and God's wisdom and God's love and God's compassion. So, it's, so in that sense, God is referred to as, as man. And this, of course, is the whole focus of the Kabbalah, the Ten Spirit. This is Kabbalah 101. Anyone who studies Kabbalah knows, immediately encounters the Ten Spirit. 
the ten divine emanations through which everything flows and everything God creates and sustains the whole world and conducts the world through the ten spirit, his ten spirit. So what Kabbalah accomplished is Kabbalah took God and turned him into man, so to speak, so that we should be able to talk about God and be able to relate. So God is infinite. How can we relate to something infinite? We can barely relate to something spiritual. We've never seen. We've never seen our soul. We don't even know what spirituality looks like. How much more so we've never seen something godly. How can we relate to something godly? So God is infinite. How could our minds can barely wrap ourselves around something that's finite? Something that's infinite is not within our capacity. So this, in a way, reduces God to language that we can understand. Talk about God. We talk about God's mind and God's wisdom and God's brilliance and God's knowledge and God's love and God's strength and God's compassion, etc. So we get a sense. Now we can begin to talk about God. We have a sense of God. So this enabled us to be able to relate to God, talk about God. That's why we have Kabbalah. We can, the study of Kabbalah, we can somehow talk about God in a way that's humanly possible. So God made himself accessible, made himself available. He concentrated his infinite self and he placed himself in language that we can understand. Famous parable of Rabbi Dovbe, the Magadim is rich, like a parent who loves his child. So what does the parent do? The parent wants to play, Einstein wants to play with his little kid. So what, he's going to sit him down in his lap and tell him, E equals, uh, you know, the theory of relativity. <laughs> the poor baby will be crying. So Einstein gets on all four and starts playing horsey and starts <laughs> <laughs> rolling on the ground. And the kid is laughing. The baby is laughing. They're communicating fabulously. He's talking the language of the baby. Of course, listen, Einstein is, remains Einstein. Just because someone walks into the room and sees Einstein rolling <laughs> on the floor, <laughs> playing, playing a silly and giggling. Einstein remains Einstein, but Einstein is communicating with his baby, and the baby is laughing. He can talk, he can relate. So God, out of his infinite love for us, concentrated himself and is talking to his baby language. Wisdom, understanding, knowledge. I mean, to God, this, this doesn't even exist. What wisdom? What's wisdom? I can't even find wisdom. I don't even know what wisdom looks like. What's wisdom? What's understanding? What's knowledge? What's love? What's compassion? These are all highly defined. These are defined. These are limited. This is, this is not... God is infinite. God is undefined. God is, is infinitely times greater than wisdom and infinitely times greater than love and infinitely times greater than compassion. I mean, God is beyond. But God, out of his infinite love for us, wanted to speak to us, wanted to communicate with us. This unbridgeable gap between us and the infinite. We, we, we don't even know where to begin. The moment we open our mouth, it's a, we, we, we have nothing to say. We have nothing to, we can't relate, can't connect. So God, out of his infinite love for us, concentrated himself in our baby talk, in the language of man. So God, God's will, so God revealed himself, emanated from within himself, the ten spherot. And we talk about God's wisdom and God's love and God's compassion and God's competitiveness and God's 
royalty. But these are all these are all approximations. That's the danger when you learn Kabbalah. You have to be very careful to remember. Don't don't humanize God to the extent that you may turn God into something something physical to something. You have to realize what God is infinite and God is beyond definition and beyond description. And the moment we say anything about God, it's not God. <laughs> it's guaranteed because anything we say is already a definition, is already a conception, is already an idea. Any idea, any conception, any sense, anything, we have no idea because we're not God. We're not infinite. So we, we don't even know what infinite looks like. We don't, it's like telling a blind person, try to describe the blind person who's born blind, tell him what the, the color red is. <laughs> you can talk, you can be brilliant and intelligent, you talk to him from today till tomorrow, he has no clue you're talking about, he has no reference, because he doesn't have it within him. So we don't know what the infinite is, we, we don't have it within us, we can't even begin to know. But God in his infinite love for us revealed himself and concentrated himself in Chachm and Bina and Da. So we talk about God's emanation from within himself, for wisdom, understanding and knowledge divine wisdom, divine love, divine compassion. So this is a way to humanize God. So we can wrap our mind around it, at least we can communicate, at least we can talk about it. And these are all the names, all the names in the Torah, the seven names, every name, the seven names of God that you're not allowed to erase, every name represents a different attribute of God. Kale is chesed, God's love. Elohim is God's strength. Yudke Vavke is God's compassion. Tzavaka is his netzach. And every name... Shakai is, is, is Yisoyed. Adnai is, 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 is royalty. So every name represents another manifestation of God. Because a name is a description. I name someone, I'm describing him. How could, so you're describing God the way God manifests himself in a, in a human way, so to speak. In a limited way, as Ezekiel says. The man sitting on the seat of glory. Because God is manifesting himself in a way that we can, an anthropomorphic way, so to speak, that we can relate to. But you have to remember at the same time, that's the danger. Don't think for a moment that God, don't speak of God in anthropomorphic terms, that God, God forbid, is human, that God is... It's just... Uh, that's the way they did it uh, with the conservative movement. Uh, you know, think of God as a, a very wise man with a long gray beard and this and that. But uh, many, this is a danger that can happen to many when you learn Kabbalah per se and you don't have the proper background, the proper understanding. It could lead you astray. It could lead you to a very, very coarse understanding. You have to realize that this is a way of us describing God in a way that we can relate. Nothing more. Nothing less. So that's... The Kabbalah, the Torah speaks in the language of man. But here in Hasidus, here in Hasidus, Al-Tarebi turns the whole thing upside down. Hasidus takes a human being, man, and he turns man into something godly. When you realize that we're, why do we have ten faculties? Why does man have ten faculties? Because God has ten faculties. 
So we are a manifestation of godliness. So the Alter Rebbe is explaining to us that we, a human being, is a parable to God. The focus here in this letter is not about God. He doesn't even get back. He says that everything in this world is a parable. So we, our ten faculties, are a parable to help us understand God. But he spends a very long letter, a great length, explaining the parable, explaining, going through one, one by one man's ten faculties. Firstly, the way it's found in every human being, and then he repeats, he goes back, how these ten faculties are specifically found within the Jew, the godly soul, the same ten faculties, how it's expressed in the godly soul. And he ends there, he doesn't even go back. Oh, and now we can understand how it is by God. Because that's not, that's not the point Alter Rebbe is coming to make. That's what the Kabbalah talks about. The Kabbalah talks about how I can picture, so to speak, and how I can talk about God. Because from myself, language of man, I can extrapolate, and from there I can get a picture, so to speak, or try to find the language I can talk and explain God's wisdom and God's brilliance and God's knowledge, etc., etc. So what Kabbalah did, Kabbalah took God, who's infinite, and turned him into man. What Hasidus did, Hasidus took man and turned him into something godly. By showing how we are a manifestation of godliness. In our wisdom, in our brilliance, in our knowledge, in our love, in our strength, in our compassion, etc. We have and we, can, we manifest godliness. So you took man, raw man, and you turned him into something godly. Reflection of the infinite, reflection of something godly. That's the innovation of Hasidus. That's the difference between the Hasidus and Kabbalah. That's why Hasidus talks about man. Kabbalah talks about God. Hasidus talks about man. Because it's about changing man. It's discovering the godliness within us. And that completely transforms human consciousness. And that completely transforms man. It turns man from something coarse and crass and low, despicable, into something godly, into something precious. This is the whole purpose of the Ten Svirot. The Ten Svirot, the whole purpose of the Ten Svirot, they service as a way for us to reveal the godliness within us. It's the exact reverse. Because man is the ultimate. That's what God wanted. That's what God desired. That man living in this world, in this earthy world, coarse, crass world, man should be transformed into something godly. A reflection of the infinite. A reflection of Hashem. This is the whole purpose of creation. The whole purpose of the world of emanation. The whole purpose of the Svirot. So the Alter Rebbe, like everything else, Alter Rebbe is so subtle. He doesn't beat, it, beat you over the head. He just expects you to have enough to realize what he's saying here. Every letter of the Alter Rebbe, every chapter of the Tanya, everything the Alter Rebbe touches every, is revolutionary, is, is mind-boggling. It, it, it challenges your whole assumption. It completely changes how you think about it. The Alter Rebbe, in a very subtle way, in this letter, turns the, turns the head around, explains and reveals what the revolution of the Barshemtiv was. What the revolution of Hasidus was versus the Kabbalah. It's not just a repeat of the Kabbalah, a concise uh, 
review what the Kabbalah discusses. No, it's a whole brand new take. It's a whole fresh perspective on the Ten Sefirot. To understand the allegory and metaphor, the words of the wise and their riddles with respect to the Sefirot. This is actually taken from Mishle, the book of Proverbs, written by King Solomon, the wisest of all men. Okay, continue. The commentaries note. Commentaries note that allegory and metaphor refers to the written Torah, which includes allegorical passages which are true at both the elusive and the literal level. An example would be, seek life with the woman whom you love. Although in this context, woman is a metaphor for the wisdom of the Torah, the verse retains its simple meaning as well. So there's allegory and there's metaphors. When the Torah speaks of something, the Torah means literally. But it's also, everything in the Torah is also an allegory for something else. Also a metaphor for something else. So that's one thing. And then he says riddles. What's the difference between an allegory, a metaphor, and a riddle? He says the riddle, he says, continue. The commentaries note further that the words of the wise and their riddles refers to the oral Torah. The words of the wise refers to those things that are revealed to all, while their riddles refers to those things which need to be revealed and solved. You have the written Torah that's written. So in the written itself, you have the literal meaning of the written word. And that's first and foremost what the Torah means, a literal meaning. That's the foundation. But then you also have a metaphor. It also speaks of uh, something deeper. Then you have the oral Torah. The oral Torah that's hinted. It takes the wise to be able to realize what the Torah is hinting at. Not everything is spelled out. Not everything has to be spelled out. You just have to give a hint, and then you understand the words of wisdom that are contained in here, and that's the oral Torah, the oral tradition. And then you have the secrets, the riddles. That's the secrets of the Torah. That's completely concealed. That's like a riddle. A riddle is a closed to, to access the riddle, to reveal... The wisdom that's there, it's, it's hidden. In, the, in this world, the answer is here, but it's, it's like a closed box. That represents the secrets of the Torah. There's a lot of secrets here, a lot of depth. But it's a riddle. You have to be able to solve the riddle. How do you identify it? Well, that's referring to the, the Kabbalah, referring to the secrets of the Torah. So you have the mushal. Everything in this world is a mushal. He's going to say. It's a parable. Parable. Everything in this world could be a parable to help us understand something profound. Beyond the surface. Then you have Melitza. Melitza means that the parable, besides the parable pointing its finger to the nimshal, to the moral of the story, the parable itself is also sweet. It's also... Understanding the parable is also a, a, a lesson. Seeing the parable and understanding the parable, there's a lot of sweetness there, just in the parable itself. Then there was the parable leads you to understand the deeper insight. That's the then you have the secret, things that's not so obvious. You have to go a little deeper. That it's pointing to something much, much deeper. In this letter, you're going to see, he's going to go through, he's going to explain. How the tenths we wrote, and that our, we have the marshal for the tenths we wrote, like the, uh, the ten faculties within a person act as a marshal, as a parable, as a militia, 
Malitza. Malitza is like uh, words that are sweet. Uh, the parable itself is also, even if you don't get beyond the parable, just understanding the parable, the parable itself is also illuminating and enlightening, is also sweet and interesting. So, understanding the parable, the ten faculties within a person are the parable, to God, the ten svirot, the ten divine illuminations. That's the marshal is pointing to the nimshal, to the moral, to the lesson. But even the parable itself, understanding the parable, the ten faculties of a person, are also sweet. It's also nice to have an understanding of yourself, to have an understanding of your inner workings, and the process, our inner consciousness, how we work, and the whole procedure. That's beautiful in itself, even if you don't get beyond that pointing its finger to Hashem. And then he's going to explain that even deeper, as the riddle, where you see the godly, the godliness, where you see the, uh, he's going to describe the ten faculties within the godly soul, which is more hidden and concealed and deeper and more profound. And that's like the riddle that's contained within, within the parable. Applying this phrase to the Sphero, the Alta Rebbe is indicating that the Sphero contains all four levels, allegory, metaphor, words of the wise, and riddles. For the Sphero are found both above in the spiritual world as well as within a Jew's soul. It is known throughout the land from the mouth of heavenly saints, may their souls rest in Eden, enabling us to somewhat comprehend the verse, and from my flesh shall I behold Hashem. So this is a very profound uh, idea that uh, written in Job. Job said, from my flesh I know God. And that's the most powerful way of knowing from your own personal experience. How could you relate to something outside of you if you can relate it from your own personal experience? So he says, from my flesh I know God in a general sense. Just like I know that I'm alive. I've never seen my soul. I never heard my soul. But I'm more certain of my soul than anything in the world I can taste or touch or smell or experience through my five senses. So from my flesh, I know God. I extrapolate it just like there's a body. But I know the body is nothing. What's the body? My body is asleep. I'm half dead. When, when the body is dead, it's a corpse. It's a piece of clay. It's the soul. Everything is the soul. Every movement that you make, it's not the body. The body is nothing. It's the soul that moves. All 100 trillion cells that are alive, it's a soul. And the moment the soul leaves, I'm nothing. I desire my soul. It's my, the energy. It's the soul. It's the life. Even though I can't see my soul, but I'm more certain of my soul than anything in the world I can see or hear. When you wake up in the morning, you're, you're awake. You're alive. You don't have to touch yourself to know that you're there. You don't have to see yourself in the mirror. You don't have to hear yourself sing in the shower know that you're alive, you exist. You're so certain, you're awake, I'm here. Who is that I? I'm here. What? What? You sense yourself from the inside out. That's sensing yourself from the inside out. So just like my own personal experience, I know that the, what, how I sense myself from the inside out is more real to me than anything I can sense from the outside looking in. So I can extrapolate from the microcosm, I can extrapolate to the macrocosm. The same is true with God. There's a world, a whole world, and the world is a large world and there's inanimate objects and there's organic life and there's animal life and there's human life just like the human being. There's hair, there's nails, there's a heart, there's skin, there's bones, there's a whole, a whole organism. But there's one soul that animates everything. 
So too, I know from my flesh, I know God. I can see God. It's not faith. I have to have faith in my soul. I don't have faith in my soul. I know that I exist. I can feel it. I experience it. And I'm more certain of that than anything in the world I can see or hear or taste or touch or smell. Same thing is with God. I've never seen God. I've never heard God. God never spoke to me. I never heard Him. I never saw Him. Yet I'm more certain of God than anything. Because I see this world is alive. This world has a soul. That's experiencing reality from the inside out. Instead of like the scientist who's like the five blind scientists touching the elephant. This one touching the foot of the elephant and swearing an elephant is a tree trunk and you're writing scientific papers to prove it. And this one touches the, 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 the nose of the elephant and swears the elephant is a rope. Each one, each one is touching, like the blind, leading the blind. Because you're learn, le looking at life from the outside looking in. Touching, seeing, smelling, di dissecting, measuring. That's completely external and you miss the whole point. The whole point is from the inside out, there's a soul. It's as foolish as taking, taking a tear and, and taking the tear to the laboratory. What's a tear? Let me dissect it. Let me write a scientific paper on it. A tear has so much salt in it. A tear. You're missing the whole point of the story. The tear is not about the salt and the makeup of the tear. The tear is the emotion that a person is sad and he's crying. That you can't capture in a laboratory. But that's from within. That's from the inside out versus from the outside in. So just like I know from my own flesh, it's the inside out perspective that's much more real to me than anything external then the same is with this world. Everything that happens in this world, there's a whole inner dynamic, there's a soul, God is creating, God is sustaining, God. Nothing happens in this world without God. Just like my body, the slightest movement, it's my soul that's moving. It's not me. And when I look at you, what do I see? I'm not looking at your the physical, what I see, I see you, your personality, your character, I'm looking at your soul. The, the physical is the shell through which I see you. But it's just the container. I'm looking, I'm seeing you, the person. So when you look at this world, you realize the same way. Just like you experience yourself. So I look at what's primary is the inside out, the neshama, the soul, the energy that I call I, which I... Same is true with Hashem. I look at this world, I, suddenly, I see the energy. It's, suddenly it becomes see-through, transparent. It's just a body, but everything that happens in this world, everything that grows, everything that exists, every movement, God is creating, sustaining, moving, everything. So from my flesh, I see God. It's not faith. I don't need faith. Just like I don't need faith to believe in my soul. I'm more certain of my soul than anything else that I could see. So I'm more certain of God than anything in the world I can see. That's what Job is saying in a general sense. From my flesh, I know God. I see God. But now, to go a little deeper... Okay, continue. This verse speaks to the partial understanding of Hashem's blessed divinity from the consideration of the soul which is vested in the flesh of man. This refers only to the dimension of the soul that animates the body. But the Rebbe Shlita notes the essence of the soul, like the spirituality that transcends this world at large, remains incomprehensible to man. So we're talking about when I understand God, we're talking about the level of God, so to speak, where God fills all the worlds, where God is like the soul of the world. Of course, just like the human being, even a human being, the part of the soul that interfaces with the body, that's the superficial part of the soul. The essence of the soul remains, remains at its source. The essence of the soul completely transcends the body. But it's the part that 
animates the body and animates every organ in the body and individual, every individual organ with its own unique energy and abilities, the ability to, com- to think and comprehend and the, the brain and the ability to feel in the heart. So I feel the soul, I feel the soul functioning within me, but that conscious level of the soul is just a superficial part of the soul. There's a subconscious, there's so many deeper levels that I'm completely unaware of, that are totally beyond my consciousness. So even in the soul, we're just talking about the superficial part of the soul. So from that I can understand a little understanding of the superficial part of God, so to speak. Where God interfaces with the world, or God creates the world and sustains the world, and God is the soul of the world. God himself is way beyond that, completely transcendent and beyond even his ability to create and even his ability to create and sustain the world. But at least I have some understanding of godliness. I can get a sense of God's creative energy and God creating the world. This correspondence between the soul and its creator accords with the teaching of our sages, blessed memory on the verse, give praise my soul to God just as HaKadosh Baruch Hu permeates the world, so does the soul permeate the body. al Rebbe is saying a very, very important point. King David says, Hashem. My soul praises Hashem. Because from my soul, I know God. Just like my soul I can't see, I can't see God. Just like the soul animates me, the soul animates the world. God animates the world. God is the soul of the world, etc. Five different things. But here he's saying a very important point. He's quoting the rabbis. And there are actually two versions. There's one version we find elsewhere the rabbis say. That just like the soul fills the body, so too God fills all the worlds. The Alter Rebbe chooses the version that's stated in the Talmud. Just like God permeates the world, so the soul permeates the body. And he's being very precise here because he's revolutionizing for us. He's helping us understand how we have to look at this correctly. We shouldn't think that, of course, this world is a parable. Everything in this world is a parable. A parable helps us understand, understand God. So what's primary? Our reality is primary, but it's useful that we can also use our reality to help us understand something that's beyond our scope. It's really beyond us. But really, there's no connection between the two. So Dalta Rebbe is pointing out, no. The correct way, the correct perspective is to realize that not only there's a connection between the two, but why... Does the soul fill the body? You know why the soul fills the body? Because God fills the world. The parable is a consequence of the moral. The two are connected. It's not too different. For example, we think of sweetness. You have a sweet tooth, okay? Sweet candy, sweet uh, nash, sweetness of the apple. Where does that sweetness come from? On a more spiritual level, there's the sweetness of personal loves to do kindness. Personal loves to do an act of kindness. There's a sweetness that you just 
have, a person who enjoys doing kindness, is a tremendous sweetness in being able to help a person and being, doing an act of kindness. Then on a deeper level, there's a sweetness in a song. A person sings, and there's such a sweetness to the song and to the experience. On a deeper level, a person understands a concept, and he really understands the concept in all its brilliance, all its depth, and all its profundity, the, the, the sweetness of understanding an idea, of thoroughly understanding an idea, digesting an idea, and understanding it. Now, could you compare the sweetness of understanding an idea to the sweetness of a candy? But it's like a chain. One level of sweetness, then manifests itself in a lower level of sweetness and then the same idea of sweetness manifests itself in a lower level and a lower level so where is the main sweetness the main sweetness is in the candy <laughs> the main sweetness is right where it is in, in, in the spiritual level that's real sweetness that's the real deal you have a reflection of it a tiny reflection, a small little, a fraction, a little reflection of that level of sweetness in the candy, in the apple, in the physical. But where does it start? Where does it originate? Primarily, it originates in the spiritual level. From the spiritual level, it's manifest in the physical. At the Shalak, the famous line of the Shalak, people think that the Torah is speaking in this world. But it's hinting. It's a parable to also spiritual ideas, greater ideas, deeper ideas. But primarily the Torah is speaking in this world. Says, no, we have it all wrong. The Torah is primarily speaking in the upper worlds, the spiritual realms, the godly realms. But the Torah speaks in the language of man. Because primarily the inner dynamic, where, where is it really happening? And the example of sweetness, where is real sweetness? Real sweetness is an idea in the spiritual realm. It also manifests itself in the lower level, in the emotions, in this song, in the apple. But that's just a fraction, just a taste of sweetness. You want to bribe a child to study Torah, you give him a candy. To, that he should associate learning with, with sweetness. To realize that really what's sweet, sweet is learning. That's what's sweet. That's real sweetness. But, you know, a child doesn't understand. So you give him a physical, okay, here's a, here, take a candy. So you'll make that association and you'll grow up and you'll learn and realize and discover that we, real sweetness is, I don't need a candy. This is the candy. This is the sweetest thing in the world. I don't need anything else. So that's what Alter Rebbe says. It's not that the main dynamic is in this world, but it's, a, it's also we can use it as a parable to help us understand things that are beyond our grasp. No. The correct understanding is everything in this world is a physical manifestation of the spiritual. If it exists in this world, if there's sweetness in this world, where do you think sweetness comes from? It's just a manifestation, a tip of the iceberg. It's a, a little crumb, a little taste, a little fraction 
of what real sweetness is. You think the sweetness is in the apple and the candy? No, you wonder what real sweetness is. Sweetness is in the spiritual. That's the real dynamic. That's the reality. The spiritual is the reality. The physical is the manifestation, is the symptom, is the tip of the iceberg. And that's why it's a parable. And that's why it's a precise parable. Because the, marshal, that the physical is a perfect marshal, a perfect parable for the spiritual. Because everything the physical has comes from the spiritual. So therefore, it perfectly matches it. Just like the physical eye. The physical eye perfectly matches the soul's ability to see. The eye is a manifestation of the soul's ability to see. So all the evolutionaries, they're tripped up when it comes to the eye. They can't explain it. How did the eye evolve? There's no logical explanation. Because really the physical is just a manifestation of the spiritual. The fact that the soul has the ability to see, it manifests itself in the physical eye. That's a perfect vessel to the soul's ability to see. Perfect to the last detail. So the, that's why the physical is a parable. Why is this physical world a parable to the spiritual, to the godly? Because that's where it comes from. It's just a manifestation. Everything in the physical world is just a manifestation of the spiritual. It's like taking a three-dimensional object and projecting it on a two-dimensional surface. What you get is a cartoon. <laughs> but, it, but it's a three-dimensional uh, that's being manifested in the, in the surface. So you, from the marshal, so it's a projection. The physical is just a projection of the spiritual. So if you look at it correctly... This changes your perspective. You have to look at this world correctly. Instead of looking at this world as a maya, as an illusion, as a distortion, as a, a contradiction to holiness and to spirituality and to truth and to godliness. On the contrary. This world is, yes, it's a flat, two-dimensional manifestation of something three-dimensional, four-dimensional, five-dimensional. But if you learn how to realize that everything in this world is a parable and you realize what it's pointing its finger to, its source, its true source, which is in the spiritual realm, in the godly realm, then you start looking at this world in the right way. So we're saying it's not a cover-up we think it is. It's not a cover-up at all. It appears to be a cover-up. It appears to be a conflict, a contradiction, a cover-up, the, the, the antithesis, the exact opposite. But when you start looking at this world as a marshal, he says, Mahu, just like God fills the world, so too the Neshava fills the world. It's just a manifestation. How can we fill the world? You know why we can fill the world? How can our Neshama fill our bodies? Because God fills the world. We are a manifestation of that. We are a, a, a fraction, a, a fragment, a tip of the tip of the iceberg, a reflection of what's really going on, the real dynamic of God filling all the world. It changes your whole perspective. That's what Job is teaching us on the deepest level. From my flesh I know God, as the Talmud spells it out. Just like, not from my flesh I know God, but just like God fills all the world, that's why my soul fills my body. And that's why I'm able to take this world and use it as a stepping stone to extrapolate. Instead of looking at this world as a concealment, I realize this world is not a concealment. This world is a manifestation of God. It's a parable. Everything in this world, everything in this world is a parable to Hashem. 
if you learn how to interpret it properly. A person doesn't realize that. What do you see? All you see is a cartoon. You don't realize it. You don't see the projection. When you're disconnected, you don't see the connection. And that's what he's going to explain next. Why is it that the Jew sees the connection? No one else sees this connection. Because a Jew is connected. Because our soul comes from God. So because we are connected, we have that faith. We're born with that faith inherently. We don't even have to acquire it. We're just born with it. We have that godly faith and that godly connection. That's why we have that connection. So we, everyone is looking at the same world. Everyone sees a disconnect, a maya, born in sin, uh, the, the, you know, a horrible, terrible world. Life is short, brutish, nasty. And yet the Jew looks at the same world. <laughs> and we see Hashem. Everything in this world is a parable to Hashem. I don't know what you're talking about. This is a Garden of Eden. This is a, this is a beautiful world. We who suffer more from the darkness and the deceit and the lies of this world more than anyone else combined, and yet we look at the same world and we see, we celebrate. We celebrate life. We see a Garden of Eden. Because we're connected, we realize everything in this world is a manifestation of the real truth, of the real dynamic, of what's really going on, which is the spiritual and the godly. I mean, this completely revolutionizes the way we look at this world. That's why he says, he emphasizes, as the rabbis say, just like God fills the world, that's why the soul fills the body. That's the connection. That's why it's such a powerful parable. That's why this world is such a powerful parable. Why the parable is so powerful. Why it could be a parable? Because, because it comes from there. It's not two different things. It's a reflection of that truth. How indeed can we possibly compare the soul to God? The Ultra Rebbe, therefore, goes on to quote the Zohar, the soul derives from the innermost aspect of godliness, thus sharing characteristics with the supernal sphero and with divinity itself. We are therefore able to understand godliness through the analogy of the soul. So that's why we make the connection. Because we are a piece of God, we have that connection. That's why we're able to decipher the mystery. We're able to see through and we're able to correctly interpret the data. Everyone else is looking at the same data and it just goes over their head. They don't make the connection. We look at the same data and we get all excited. We interpret it correctly. It's pointing to Hashem because it comes from Hashem. Why are we the only ones interpreting the data this way? Because we're connected, inherently connected. This correspondence likewise accords with the teaching of the Zohar on the verse, and he blew into his nostrils the soul of light. He who blows, blows from within him, that is, from his inwardness and his innermost being. So that's the rest of creation was created through God's speech. You can speak and speak and speak because you don't have to invest anything in your speech completely external and superficial to the person. But blowing, you're investing yourself. You, you, you're out of breath very quickly because it's coming from within you. So you, you're, quickly, you're quickly out of breath. So Hashem blew into Adam and referring to specifically, like every Jew, God blew into him 
So we have God's breath is our soul. So we literally have a piece of God inside of us. Unlike speech, which utilizes only the external aspect of the speaker's breath, glowing emits the innermost breath. Thus when scripture, st scripture states that he blew into his nostrils the soul of life, it means to indicate that the soul derives from the innermost aspect of godliness, as explained in Igret HaTeshuvah, Chapter 4. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.